This edition of the Standard's Tech and Science Daily is a preview episode of our Brave New World series. Evgeny Lebedev talks to leading experts about the latest trends in modern medicine and how to maximise health and longevity. To hear the whole interview and listen to other episodes, search Brave New World Evening Standard on your podcast provider or hit the link in the show notes. I'm Evgeny Lebedev and welcome to my podcast, Brave New World. Mental health and addiction are fifth leading causes of illness throughout the world, affecting 20% of the population. The world filled with uncertainty with bleak prospects for the future has led to mental health crisis. However, a new approach to mental health and addiction is starting to gain momentum, and it's been coined the psychedelic renaissance. There is mounting evidence to suggest it could help those suffering from depression, anxiety, drug addiction, and alcohol use disorder. While some researchers are skeptical, others describe it as a paradigm shift for psychiatry. David Nutt is a psychiatrist and a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and one of the godfathers of the field. So the term psychedelic originally meant mind manifesting. These were drugs like LSD and uh, ayahuasca, which allowed people to see what they thought was a true self uh, rather than the uh, rather constrained perspectives on life that, um, that most people have as a result of upbringing and education, etc. He uses a range of brain imaging techniques to explore the causes of addiction and other psychiatric disorders and search for new treatments. Professor Nutt's career has also not been without controversy. He served as a chairman of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, where he repeatedly clashed with the government ministers over issues of drug harm and classification. Now when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about generally about drugs which work on the serotonin receptor system, a particular receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. And these are drugs like LSD, like ayahuasca, which is the drinkable form of DMT. I like psilocybin, like 5-methoxy-DMT, and also mescaline. And they share a common pharmacology targeting this serotonin receptor. They also produce very similar changes in the brain, which are manifest by very similar but not identical changes in the experience of consciousness. Now, there's a broader definition of psychedelic, which encompasses other drugs such as ketamine and drugs like salvia, the divinorum, and uh, ibogaine. And these produce slightly different changes in the brain, but they do produce altered states of consciousness. And currently, really, only ketamine is being used therapeutically alongside the, what we call the classic serotonin psychedelics. Lara Parker is a journalist for the website BuzzFeed. After exploring multiple treatments to treat her clinical depression, she decided to try ketamine-assisted therapy in California, where she lives. Lara, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and basically what, why we're here having this conversation? Yeah, so it's what been a couple of years now, or a little over a year, I decided to try ketamine-assisted therapy, which is... In America, in California specifically, they have clinics. And basically, you can go to these clinics. If you get approved, you have to sort of meet with a therapist beforehand. Um, If you live with certain things, like for me, I live with depression. And it got to the point where I had tried the pharmaceutical route. I had 
been in therapy for five to six years, I felt like I was sort of running out of options. And all of this was just like really fascinating to me as someone who lived with depression and is really fascinated by plant medicine because I live with chronic pain and I medicate with medical cannabis. And so I was really curious about it and decided to give it a go and sort of write about my experience because when I Googled it, a lot of what I found was like this high level scientific study type stuff, which is great. And there's a place for that. But for me, I was like, I just want to know what someone feels like, like going through it. And it's a difficult thing to describe really, but I wanted to do my best to sort of give readers information about what it was like for me, just like an average person with depression to go through something that isn't readily available to everyone. What did it entail? What was your experience? So the first thing that you do is meet with a therapist on staff to really go over your medical history in depth, specifically your mental health history, to make sure that you're a viable candidate for ketamine therapy. And then from there, they sort of recommend a number of treatments based on what they think you're dealing with and what might help. So I ended up doing four treatments in total you know, I would have like a lower dose of around 30 to 50 milligrams and it was an injection in my arm and I would be like completely not in the room. Whereas they would say that other people, it would take more than that um, to actually have the hallucinogenic effect. I found it to be very difficult because I was very disoriented and nauseous and dizzy. So I ended up laying down for the final three treatments, which I personally would recommend to anyone trying this. And uh, they play music for you and the therapist sort of sits next to you. They inject you and within three minutes, you are in the space, whatever that space is for you based on what the medicine brings up. At one point, I felt like I was at Lake Tahoe. And I also had this like really powerful vision, for lack of better term, about an uncle that had passed recently before that um, to suicide. And it was like this very calming moment where I was very, very sure that he was okay and that what had happened was okay. It's hard to describe after the fact, but I was just like, very sure. And I'm not a very sure of myself person. And a lot of my depression is sort of questioning life's meanings and why things happen. I mean, the classic, like why do good things or bad things happen to good people? But like in my sessions, I was very self-assured and very aware that everything was going to be okay. Did you choose the music? I didn't choose the music. And it's sort of interesting. They have these like different mixes and you're, in my experience, like my brain sort of went along with it. How do you feel after the sessions, both long-term and and short-term? Like when I look back on the article, I sort of wish that I had waited like eight months to write it because I felt like after I had written it, I started to experience a little bit more of the positive mind effects, which I was sort of surprised by because I thought that it would be not as gradual. I thought it would be like more immediate, but I will say that in the year after, I definitely feel like better emotionally, but I don't feel cured, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Is this something you'd consider doing again? I absolutely do think I would do it again. And I was thinking recently about sort of looking into the possibility of trying to do it annually or biannually and what that would look like for me. I think even if I didn't do ketamine specifically again, this has sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities that exist with psychedelics. And I think even if it was difficult physically at times, the fact that it gave me such powerful visions that will stick with me probably for the rest of my life is something that just makes me really hopeful. And I think hope is 
you know, one of the best things that you can have to fight depression. So I think even if I don't do ketamine again, I think the world of psychedelics is definitely something that I want to be a part of. Patient lived experiences are really, really important when we talk about living with depression and anxiety. So I just want to open people's eyes that even if it doesn't work for everyone, having the option is groundbreaking and that should be something that we aim to strive for. When you look at the brain imaging of ketamine versus the LSD or psilocybin, you discover they produce very identical brain signatures. If you look at the cortex, the outer level of the brain, the high level thinking parts of the brain, you record from the cortex under these different drugs and you see that they all produce a state of profound desynchronization. Normally the brain is chugging away with a particular frequencies. There's a very famous frequency called the alpha frequency, which is about 10 hertz. And all those frequencies get profoundly disrupted by psychedelics. They disorganize the brain and they produce what is called an entropic state, a state of, of increased chaos. And they do that through working either on the serotonin system or in the case of ketamine, working on the glutamate system. But there's another interesting twist to this, which is that certainly with ketamine and with classic psychedelics, serotonergic psychedelics, after the drug is gone, there's still a residual effect in the brain, which we call neuroplasticity. The brain seems to be more capable of learning new ways of thinking and laying down new patterns of behavior. So the way we visualize these psychedelics, serotonin ones and ketamine working in disorders like depression and in addiction, is that they disrupt what you might call negative thought loops. People get locked into thinking the wrong thoughts in depression. They're often negative thoughts about guilt and about failings that people have had in the past. In addiction, they're often cravings, desires to use drugs or alcohol. And those thought loops are perpetuated thousands of times a day. So hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times in someone's lifetime. And they can become deeply entrenched to the point where the patient may even know that they're ridiculous, but they can't stop them. They become a habit in the brain. When I'm having depression, it's like none of those things are exciting or seem worth it. So there's this real disconnect because I know logically that should be a feeling that induces some happiness, but it's like my depression will not let me recognize those feelings. And psychedelics, by disrupting the circuits which underpin these thought loops, break the loops. They allow people to escape. During the trip, they escape from the thinking about the depression or the thinking about the addiction. And that has, serves two purposes. The first is it shows people they can change, they can recover. But it also, in that state of uh, more entropic brain activity, you can make connections in the brain which you haven't made probably since you were a child. And those new connections can help you see things differently. They can help people realize the causes of their depression or their addiction or see ways out, see other ways they could deal with, say, for instance, with depression. If you're drinking to deal with stress, maybe you can see that you don't need to. You could actually say no to your friends and go home to your wife rather than going out and getting drunk every night. And those new insights into how you might think differently can be laid down in the place of the old thoughts by this neuroplasticity. So it's this powerful combination of disrupting old thinking and facilitating the laying down of new thinking, which underpins the therapeutic utility of these drugs. Do you find this effect for 
every subject you've trialed on, or there are some people who don't react to it. So, no, not everyone does respond. Certainly not everyone even gets a trip. One of the strangest things we found in the study we did, which was a the first proper imaging study of LSD, we thought, well, we'll make sure everyone gets it because we'll give it intravenously. That way, you know, there's no chance of it not being absorbed. We had 24 subjects, and um, amazingly, two of them had no effect at all. And we have no idea why that is. We presume that it's maybe something to do with rapid metabolism, or it might be something to do with some people have different receptors. They don't have the same sensitivity of their serotonin receptors as others. So, so there's individual variation in the sensitivity of these drugs. But of course, there's also enormous individual variation in the experience. And this is, I think, a very important message to get across. There's a sense from people who've used these drugs experientially, non-medically, recreationally, who've had fun with these drugs, they, they sometimes say to me, well, of course, your depressed people, your, your alcoholics are getting better because you're giving them couple of hours of a fun trip? And the answer is, we're not. For most of our patients, the trips are challenging. The trips put them back into places where they are confronted with the trauma. They're confronted with the experience which led to their depression, or they're confronted with the consequences of their depression or their addiction. The issues that I talked about or thought about or went into during my experience were transformative in the sense that I got to look at them through a different lens. I mean, one of the most remarkable things we discovered in our studies of psychedelics, psilocybin in particular with depressed people, was that how profoundly beneficial even a single trip can be. People who've had depression for 20 or 30 years who've been on maybe 10 different medications could get some almost immediate respite within a day or so their depression had lifted and they were feeling normal again. They were back with their families enjoying lives. It, it was truly one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in medicine. And for a lucky few of those people, they've stayed well. So 10 years after the treatment, they're still well. But for the majority, the depression creeps back. And we don't know exactly why that is. We think it's probably got something to do with the duration of the illness. And that makes sense because you can think that people who've been depressed for a very long time have had more and more of the repetitive thoughts. They've got deeper and deeper ingrained in the brain. But also there's another aspect, which is that people who are neglected or abused as children often grow up to be depressed. And there we may have something even more sinister. We may have the fact that their brain has become wired. It's learned to be depressed. The question I had, what, why, with that in mind, it's, it's such a fringe area of research still. You said the only one that's used for therapeutic purposes now is ketamine. How do you feel about that and, and not the others? It's the only psychedelic that is licensed. And ketamine is licensed, not as a psychedelic, but as an anesthetic. Now, we're not using it as an anesthetic. We're not putting people to sleep with it. We're putting them into a state where they can have altered consciousness, they can have mystical experiences, they can break down their patterns of thinking and remember the new approaches and new insights they get. So it's a, it's a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. But we have to use ketamine because all the other drugs, all the other psychedelics are called Schedule One drugs. And being a Schedule One drug means that it's virtually impossible to work with them. You have to have special licenses, special safes, special permissions. And that adds enormously to the cost of research. 
And of course, you can only use Schedule 1 drugs in research. You, they're not medicines by definition. So one of the big challenges is for us is to try to get the regulators to change their attitude to psychedelics so that they can be more readily studied. They could be less expensive to study. You don't need the same protection as we're asked to have now. I'm going to give you an example. It's completely absurd that to work with psilocybin, which is you know a drug you can get just by picking mushrooms in your garden, I have to have a special license. I have to have several licenses, actually, to hold it, to dispense it, to research it. I have to have a special safe put in a special room with a special key access with a camera to make sure no one's stealing it. And I say to these regulators, well, hang on a sec. Why can't I just put it alongside the heroin and the fentanyl that I've got in my um, other safe box? And they say, oh, no, 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 no. They're Schedule 2 drugs. This is Schedule 1. And I say, well, hang on a sec. If anyone's going to break into a, to a hospital safe, they're going to take the heroin. They're not going to take the mushrooms. Oh, no, no. So this, this mystique that Schedule 1 drugs are so dangerous has created a monster of regulatory control, which massively, massively adds to the cost. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm working with, with Awaken Life Sciences now, because they do have a license to use ketamine off-license as a psychedelic in therapy. And despite the amazing results I got from the very first study we published in Lancet Psychiatry and Resistant Depression, which was funded by the Medical Research Council in the UK, every other grant I've put in to do this research has been turned down. So we've had six grants turned down. And without grant money, it's very hard to do this research. So I decided to work with Awaken to try to utilize ketamine, optimize ketamine, develop clinics, develop the skill sets in the therapists to know how to use and uh, progress and heal people with ketamine. And then hopefully at some stage in the not too distant future, psilocybin and maybe MDMA will come along and we can start using those as well. That was a preview of Brave New World. You can hear the whole show and listen to previous episodes by searching Brave New World Evening Standard in your podcast provider.